0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, my name is Simon Brew, and this is Film Stories. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Movies that had stories. And the story just sucks, man. This is just the beginning. Oh, we would be honored if you would join us. A very warm welcome, then, new listeners and old, to Film Stories with Simon Brew. Uh, I am Simon Brew, that's all you need to know about me. Um, the aim of the podcast, though, is to examine, just just as the title says, stories behind films. Uh, I passionately believe that even not great films um, are, are really hard to make, uh, that few people go into making a movie with any intention of it coming out the other side uh, being bad. And so what I want to do is just examine just some of the off-kilter stories sometimes of fairly commercial stuff. In fact, th- this week's episode is very commercial commercial. commercial stuff Um, because what I want to talk about this week is two um, sequels um, that both were hugely important for the studios involved um, that had really quite different results so without further ado I'm going to take you back to the late 80s and just play you a quick clip from the first of those two films suck in the guts guys with the Ghostbusters no No, please go, you! Who's yes. this Wiggler? No, 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 no. He's yours, Ray. Sick him. I have discussed the issue with you. How are you? Ray now. Stats I, from the Ghostbusters. Can nice I tell to see you what I thought you were We're just doing a uh, routine spook check. If Dr. Frankman then is he not here. Yeah, we know that, Johnny. So Harry. why are you came? Well, we got a report. There was a major creep in the area. We checked our list, and you were right on the top. Johnny, where in the hell are you from, anyway? The Upper West Side. The whole room's extremely hot, Peter. Ooh, That's huh? one. Ugly dude. Well, that's Vigo, Vigo. Mr. Vigo. Uh, Vigs, please Would you look this way, please. No, don't. no, uh, Come no, on, no, show me no. All right, Mr. Vigo. No photographs, please. Slides are available in the gift shop. Eh? Right then, so we're in 1989, and I-, I want to talk a film about a film that was a film sequel that was basically ordered to dig a studio out of a financial hole. Where the key driving factor behind it happening, like it or lump it, was commerce. Um, and where it was a sequel that that also worried fans of the original to some degree. Um, It's 1989's Ghostbusters 2, um, a film that followed the original by five years, um, which wasn't actually the plan. So these are the stories I kind of want to dig into. Um, That after the first Ghostbusters film, the brilliant 1984 original, um, turned into a huge hit... Um, Columbia Pictures, the parent company behind it, um, was keen to press ahead, um, as the story goes, with a, a follow-up movie. However, there were problems, and the, the, the a lot of the reason why Ghostbusters 2 took so long um, to get to the screen was behind-the-scenes problems at... Columbia Pictures itself. So, just to put this into some kind of context, Columbia Pictures uh, in the nineteen eighties at this point was actually owned by the Coca-Cola Company. Um, that, um, for for whatever reason, Coca-Cola wanted to get involved with films. It got burned fairly quickly and got out fairly quickly, as we'll come to. Um, it had Frank Price as chair of the studio, um, but then uh, in an act that was described as reverse snobbery, um, they hired English producer David Putnam. Um, who at the time was known for producing uh, Midnight Express, Chariots of Fire, The Killing Fields, The Mission, really highbrow stuff, and they hired him to be the head of the studio. And this was seismic in Hollywood. Um, This was the outsider coming in and taking one of the very top jobs. Um, And also someone who, who didn't really seemed to fit um, the studio system. He didn't really seem to be the kind of person who had um, experience overseeing dozens and dozens of projects in one go um, and and a huge production budget. A hugely successful producer in his own right, and that shouldn't be denigrated at all, but he was an odd fit. And it would be fair to say that during his tenure at Columbia Pictures from 1986 to 1988, um, it didn't go well at all. Um, Putnam was not a fan of big blockbuster movies, and it got to the point where he gave an interview that made the front page of, um, the entertainment, uh, trade press, uh, Variety, and in that interview, bizarrely, um, he attacked Bill Murray. Um, and I, I don't have the direct quote. Uh, I, I have looked heavily around. But uh, the, the implication was that Murray was a taker, an actor who makes millions of movies but gives nothing back to his art. So that's slightly paraphrased. Um, but Murray was a big deal. For Columbia, you know, Stripes, the, the Ghostbusters, um, who de- developing an interesting more interesting more projects there, um, and Putnam gave this interview that isolated several, you know, several key stars who all of a sudden didn't want to work for Columbia again. So also in the mix there were Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman who had headlined the hugely expensive uh, box office disappointment, uh, Ishtar. Um, and so when word got round of this when when this got the brakes were very quickly slammed on ghostbusters 2 um and he's uh, Murray's agents uh who also represented one or two other people in the mix uh were adamant that ghostbusters 2 was not going to happen while david putnam was running the studio now it, there was no sign really that putnam wanted ghostbusters 2 particularly but it was it was a strange mexican standoff um that Uh, Columbia owned the rights to Ghostbusters, but the key creative talents uh, behind the film just wouldn't budge. They just weren't making it. So director Ivan Reitman, for instance, um, went off and he put together Twins in the interim uh, to huge box office acclaim, which in turn opened up Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, comedy career, which then Reitman would go on to do Kindergarten Cop um, and Junior with Schwarzenegger. By the time, <laughs> inevitably, David Putnam's um, David Putnam's tenure at Columbia was was short-lived. That he he gave the impression of a man who was going in and trying to change the system very quickly. He wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't wooing particularly of Hollywood talent. And whilst he got some interesting projects off the ground, and that shouldn't be overlooked, um, his anti-blockbuster approach, as it was seen, um, was 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 really to the detriment of the studio which soon slipped uh, down the box office share uh, by the the box office share charts. So Columbia, at the point that they uh, opted to remove Putnam or Putnam's contract was ended or or whatever mutual agreement they came to, turned to Dawn Steele. And Dawn Steele, who tragically died at the age of 51, um, was an absolutely pioneering studio head. And she wrote a really incredible memoir called They Can Kill You But They Can't Eat You, Lessons From the Front. And it's really, really worth digging out. And Steele, um, I, I, I I I talked to I, I interviewed Amy Pascal in, in in another in another job um, a year or two ago, and I asked her about working for Dawn Steele, and Pascal just 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 said I just wanted to be her, just this incredible Hollywood figure. <laughs> Steele came into Columbia, and and going back to her memoir now, she she says, we had our work cut out for us. When I arrived, Columbia was second to last in box office share among the studios, number eight out of nine. The good news was I had nowhere to go but up, and the bad news was I had nowhere to go but up. And she needed big commercial hits, and this was the reason why two films happened and happened fast. One of them was The Karate Kid 3, um, which was fairly simple to put together um, as it turned out. The other was Ghostbusters 2. The Ghostb- because because of the position Columbia found itself in and also the strength of the CAA agency who were representing the likes of Bill Murray, suddenly Ghostbusters 2 was going to be a hugely expensive movie and a hugely expensive gamble for steel. I mean, this was no, uh, this was no flat-out home run on paper, even though it looked it. Um, it was going to come up against Back to the Future Part 2. It was going to cost an enormous amount to make, and also the back end, uh, the back end deal she had to agree to was heavily weighted uh, in favor of the creative talent of the movie. Um, I'll come to that shortly. So. The, 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 pro, the Again, going back to her book, um, she said, uh, the, Bill Murray and CAA, Creative ag- Agency, who represented him, the writers, uh, the producer, director, Ivan Reitman, the actors, Dan Aykroyd and Hallard Ramis, had been offended and alienated by Putnam. I was in a position to clean up these relationships, she wrote. Uh, quickly, I wish I could say it was more difficult than it was, but all of our goals were the same we all wanted to make it this movie and with a minimum of effort and a lot of goodwill Ghostbusters 2 went back on track that, see, that, that, that the the threat that had been put to Columbia that we won't make this film with David Putnam in charge as soon as Putnam was out um, and still just just put a meeting together to woo them, Ghostbusters 2 was back on Um the haste, actually, because once it was back on, it moved fast, and that's the reason that we got Kindergarten Cop, for instance, a year later than originally planned. That Ivan Reitman had been planning to make that after Twins, um, as goes the story, um, but Kindergarten Cop had to hit a delay as a consequence of the sudden, the sudden rush to get uh, to get Ghostbusters two uh, up and running again the meeting to bring all the creatives together had taken place at the start of 1988 uh, and by the end of 1988 uh, the film was back up and running. Now by this time the real Ghostbusters TV show had opened Ghostbusters up to um, a younger audience even though us in the younger audience had all watched the original film anyway even though we didn't get half the jokes at the time. So there was a feeling of just bringing it slightly down uh, for uh, for a little bit more of a, of a family audience but Production, production went through. There's a couple of little bits and bobs um, in the midst of it. So, there's, um, I mean, the character of Vigo, I think, in Ghostbusters 2 is great. I I'm, I know some people are, are quite harsh on Ghostbusters 2. I like all of the Ghostbusters films to varying degrees. Uh, Vigo's played, uh, I've learned, by Wilhelm von Homburg. That, that much I knew. But what I didn't know was that Max von Sydow came in and dubbed. Um, dubbed all his lines Um, and the actor and von Homburg wasn't told this and apparently he discovered it for the first time at the premiere for the movie. Just going to the deal that brought everyone together Um, I mean, it is is worth, I mean, the the sheer star power of this film uh, and the negotiating position they had, uh, 30% of the gross takings of Ghostbusters 2, this is why it was such a huge risk for Dawn Steele, even though it looked like a stereotypical easy win. 30% of the gross takings of this movie um, went to the creative talent, scaling up even more once Columbia had covered its costs. An extraordinary, extraordinary um, amount of money filming ultimately wrapped on the uh, uh, on ghostbusters 2 um, at the start of March 1989 which did leave quite a lot of um, post-production time um, although there's still I mean don't don't be fooled into thinking this is a straight special effects film because don't, I, this is pre-digital um, a lot of what well everything you see there is pretty much in camera or some kind of ingenuity um, you know look at look at the slimer effects for instance but also do keep an eye out I'm indebted to um, um an article at a website called Toolbook Studio for spotting this. Do keep an eye out for just a glorious map painting shot done by a guy called Mark Sullivan. Um, and there's there's a shot where you see a full screen view of um Sigourney Weaver's Downer's apartment and the city around it. And everything but the road in that shot uh, is painted. And it's quite incredible. I mean, now now in the era of digital filmmaking, um, you know, ingenuity takes a lot of different forms. But this was just hard, hard graft and beautiful art um, to, to make a shot come to life. Something that would just be done in a computer. Um, I'm not saying it's necessarily easy to do it in a computer, but it wouldn't even be up for discussion. It's just like, let the computer do that. Columbia ultimately won its gamble, but... Only just, it got the film into um, it got the film into cinemas. Although there was a slightly staggered release date on this one because there was a degree of truncation to the post production on Ghostbusters Two. The US release date of the movie was June the sixteenth, nineteen eighty nine. Um, we didn't get it in the UK until the following December, which was when it did go toe to toe in back to the, with, with Back to the Future. Um, something it didn't have to do to to well, just didn't have to do in the US. The actual. The actual negative cost of the movie was said to be in the region of about forty million dollars, um, and that's before um, all the back-end participation points that the key talent have. And the worldwide gross of the film was two hundred fifteen million dollars in all. Um, the U.S. take was slightly down on Ghostbusters um, at a hundred and twelve uh, million dollars. So, I mean, it was it was classed as a solid success. But the, where, I mean, it's worth it's worth noting that in the us the original ghostbusters took something like 230 million dollars so it was it was down uh, and quite heavily down that in itself didn't put um didn't put uh columbia off doing another ghostbusters film uh, although bill murray would come out and say he wasn't a massive fan of the second movie um but there was a degree of merry-go-round um, which slowed things down again so uh, columbia didn't make An awful lot of money off Ghostbusters 2, although obviously it subsequently put it out on pretty much every format and and it's more than rewarded its investment. However, a a change of it, uh, by this stage, Coca-Cola wanted out. Uh, They no longer wanted to own a movie studio and the negotiations were ongoing uh, with Sony. And this would be the moment where Sony, up until that point, um, notable for its hardware, would get into, effectively, I hate that I'm saying it this way, but that's how it was described at the time, the software business. In this instance, it wanted to get involved with films, it wanted, it wanted to own a movie studio, and a very, very expensive deal um, was brokered that saw them buy Columbia Pictures. And as part and parcel of that, Dawn Steele would exit as the head of the studio, although she would exit with uh, a production a production company of our own, which would in turn lead to cool runnings, which in turn will lead to another story on another podcast at some point. Um, Sony uh, was then headed up by John Peters and Peter Goober. Now, there's there's a partnership and a half. Um, there were murmurings of doing a further Ghostbusters film for quite a while. I think it was on the Charlie's Angels DVD that if you went in the extras and looked at Bill Murray's filmography, it listed Ghostbusters 3 because it would look like it was going to happen at the start of the 2000s. Ghostbusters did eventually come back to our screens and won over a new legion of fans, no matter uh, people who for whom it was their first Ghostbusters film, Um, you know much of the story of that Ghostbusters, I would imagine, although we'll come back to it uh, in due course. But in terms of where Ghostbusters 2 left things. It's um I I mean I, I don't I a few people would say it eclipses the original film. And also there are some odd moments. It's like why, why would all the Ghostbusters be be enemies of the city that they'd saved just five years before. I've always thought that. But you know, Bill Murray and the gang, busting goes, that's a whole lot of fun. I was I for one was happy to sign up again. Right. For our second film, then, I I, I want to do another sequel, another sequel that was pivotal to its studio at the time, although far less successfully. Um, So if if you read the description of this podcast, you'll know what's coming. But nonetheless, for the sake of uh, for the sake of just getting a bit of dramatic tension going, here's a clip. did indeed that is 1993's robocop 3 um one of the uh one of the last attempts by orion pictures um to keep itself in business basically orion had won best picture oscars and made huge profits off the back of films like the silence of the lambs and dances with wolves just I, i mean less than half a decade before the story of the fall of orion is as dramatic as hollywood studio stories come um it got, I mean, it backed the original RoboCop in uh, 1987, Paul Verhoeven directing, and rightly, rightly regarded as a modern sci-fi classic, and a film that would really put the, um, you know, delayed Judge Dredd coming to the big screen, because effectively, um, well, I, I, as the creators of Judge Dredd have noted, I mean, that was the kind of story they were looking to tell, that there were elements that were quite close. um, And, um Robocop turned into, though, a big profitable movie with an extended life on video. Um, And... Orion then, as its financial pressures grew, wanted a RoboCop 2 and got its RoboCop 2. It brought Frank Miller in to write the movie. Irving Kershner directed it. Um, And uh, this was the one, if you remember, where they they clearly made this suit out of a different substance. So it it was a bit more rubberized. and as a consequence, RoboCop looked blue. So they should have just called it RoboCop Blue. Mind you, that's a whole different connotation. Let's move on. Um, At the point RoboCop 2 was released... um, in June of 1990 that the, the stories were that the the futures of Orion were hinging on it being a success and it wasn't a massive success it wasn't massively well received frank miller was not happy with how his story was written uh, was brought to the screen um and he would subsequently say that if you want to have control be a director and he would go on to direct a couple uh, well direct his own movie and a segment of the sin city film um but Rob- RoboCop Two was was a I mean it was part of a franchise, and Orion wanted to move forward with another one. Lots of curiosities. Then um, I think one of the main curiosities about RoboCop Three is the, the computer game for it, and I, I've. Inevitably, I, I touched on, this goes back to my you I've touched on quite a few Ocean Software adaptations of movies over the episodes of this podcast so far. But the, the Ocean Software did uh, a video game of Robocop 3, which is quite groundbreaking in many ways. But what was really curious about it is it actually came out 12 to 18 months before the film and the reason for that was um, a significant delay in the movie that Ocean decided to press ahead with the release of its game whilst Orion had no choice but to uh, delay the release of the movie. Um, Robocop 3 then was something of a forerunner when it came to the movie itself because Orion had worked out that um, RoboCop was and again, there's a Ghostbusters parallel here. Watched by lots of people who it wasn't necessarily originally intended for. Although Ghostbusters did have a PG rating, RoboCop had an 18. But lots of people, me included, watched RoboCop underage, watched RoboCop two underage, and so they thought, well, let and you know, RoboCop toys were being sold. There are RoboCop toys in RoboCop three. Um, before Jurassic Park got to that idea. So, um, they, they decided they were going to have a punt for the family market. They were going to make a PG 13 Robocop film. I mean, this preempted the market trend by a good 15, 20 years. Um, and they decided to soften down the violence that the Robocop uh, franchise by that point was known for um, and just give it a little bit more of a broader appeal. Um, and so they brought in Fred Decker to direct the film. He'd, he'd done The Monster Squad most recently. He's, he's penned um, The Predator, which, which came out and, and has left cinemas fairly quickly. Um, the studio wanted the cynicism time down as well. Um but nonetheless, Frank Miller was persuaded to return and have, a, have another go at trying to get the purity of his story over in a film. He, he would he, he would admit that he, he, it didn't work out again. And in fact, consequently, he would publish his Robocop stories uh, as he originally envisaged them uh, in comic book form. Although even there, they, they weren't massively well received. So it didn't necessarily solve the problem. Um, first major logistical problem they had... Was Orion needed a new RoboCop? So I, I mean, RoboCop Two. Let's just put this into um, let, let, let's just put this into some kind of context. Um, filmed uh, from October 1989 to January 1990, was released in June 1990. Uh, Orion wanted to move its next RoboCop film into production quickly. It wanted it filming in under a year, you know, to be written, put together, uh, cast, uh, and the filming, in fact, would start on the fourth of February 1991. But Peter Weller, who had played RoboCop in the first two films was not part of the movie because Peter Weller turned the opportunity down because he was wanted to make Naked Lunch with David Cronenberg instead. Now I, I've talked quite a lot about how Orion didn't have an awful lot of money, and this this will come into play shortly. So first of all, it needed to um, it needed to recast the role of Murphy stroke RoboCop. Michael Dudikoff apparently turned it down, um, um, but. Eventually they turned to uh, Robert John Burke uh, to take on the role. There was a slight logistical thing to this... Because Orion didn't really have the budget to make a brand new Robocop suit from scratch. So they needed someone who could fit, um, basically, the stuff that they'd made for Robocop 2. And Burke just about fitted the bill. And I say just about because he didn't entirely. His neck was longer than Peter Weller's, for instance. So you know, there's a little bit of a Frankenstein element to the suit. Um, the bits of it had to be rebuilt to accommodate uh, to accommodate a different actor in it. And Burke... Throughout the production. Would, would note that it was an uncomfortable suit to wear. Um, it's worth bearing in mind as well. That modifications have been made to the suit. Between Robocop 1 and Robocop 2. To address some of the comfort issues. But here they were back. Pretty much in the, um, in, in, in the same position. As they were. So. Burt came in. Most of the original cast by this point had disappeared. I mean, people like Rip Torn came in, um, and then um, I, I mean Nancy Allen was back for. Well, I, I'm not going into spoilers, but uh, it, it wasn't. Um, yeah, she 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 was back in a, in a role that it. it, it <laughs> let's basically say she deserved a little bit more than she got in that film, um, and. Production on the movie, um, production on the movie went ahead, and it wrapped on the seventeenth uh, of May, nineteen ninety-one. The seventeenth of May, nineteen ninety-one. So bear that in mind, because what happened, um, what happened around the time is, is Orion finally fell that the uh, the company that was paying for Robocop three was in a position where it, it just couldn 't release Robocop three um, it couldn 't afford to the company were, was bankrupt um, and its assets were up for sale and this is why you had things like uh, the aforementioned ocean software pressing ahead with the game because there was just a sheer uncertainty about when we would when Robocop three w- would actually be released. Um And so this went on for some time we've had it fairly recently when MGM hit financial problems, which delayed uh, the red uh, the um, it delayed the hobbit films and led to Guillermo del toro um, leaving them and Peter Jackson coming in to direct them all and quite I, I think Cabin in the Woods was held up as a consequence of mGM not being able to afford to release films until it had solved its financial woes. Orion was very much in that position. So Fred Decker delivered his cut of the film. Oh ba- Basil Polideris came back in and did the score and his score to the original Robocop is great. His score and he brought back the cues to Robocop 3 that were missing from Robocop 2. And you heard, you know, you heard the main theme in the clip there. Just a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Um, but the cut was delivered um, and it was aimed at PG 13. It did I mean it wasn't I think the film cost something like 20, 22 million dollars to make and, and it would be fair to say the vast bulk of that money did not go on the Robocop jetpack effect, which looked like one of the most blatant plays for the the, the action figure market I I can remember seeing. Um, Not that we would see it for some time. Um, It took an awful long time to unpickle the legal wranglings that were surrounding the third Robocop movie, and time dragged on. So, the original release date was 1992. Um, And, uh, I mean, we talked just before about Ghostbusters 2, which, you know, was released three months after um, the last shot was in the can. In the case of, uh, of Robocop 3, filming was was finished in the middle of 1991 1992, the release date was cancelled I mean, no sign of it at all 1992 goes into 1993, still no sign uh, uh, of Robocop 3 at the start of the year, and it was only eventually, I, I mean, it, its fate was eventually resolved and it did land its release date and it, I mean, it came out in Japan first um, on April April the 18th 1993 it wouldn't land in America until November the November the 5th of 1993 that's like nearly two, well it is two and a half years after production had wrapped on the film, um, which I, I mean, it, it's just not common. Um, it's not like there, there was an extensive amount of post-production effects work that needed to be done, um, and and it was an extraordinary, you know, an inordinate amount of time. Really, it was. I mean, the delay for us in the UK was even longer. We didn't get it, I and mean, it was such a small release, I remember at the time, um, we didn't get it until June the 24th, 1994, so that's over three years, and, uh, I mean, Robocop 3 isn't, I mean, there's no way around it, really, it's just not a good film, um, I and I remember the first time I watched it, and, you know, quite... I, Got a lot of affection for RoboCop movies, and and you know, desperately try to enjoy. It. Got something out of it, and I rewatched it again ahead of this, and it's just it's just not right. I mean, it has it has one or two bits of merit. Um, and my my former colleague uh, Ryan Lambie wrote, uh, uh, it's worth searching his piece about ten remarkable things about RoboCop three. If you're looking for a man really trying to find the good in the film, as he always did. Um, but I, I love the bit that he found that the price of food in the future is cheap. Just by he zoomed in on one of the boards in the background when people are queuing up for burgers. But um, th- th- I mean, there was no getting around it. The the experiment of going for a family friendly audience had failed, um, and they did get away with quite a lot for a PG thirteen. I think. I mean, a lot. I, we we talk a lot now about how the Dark Knight changed what you could get away with in a PG-13 I mean there's quite a lot of violence uh, in Robocop 3 as much as it's toned toned down um, which suggests that there was always some latitude within that rating Um, but it, it came out and and bluntly it, it just it bombed um it and for a film that cost what well, yeah 22 million to make it, its box office its opening weekend was in the four million mark and that's not the big franchise saver you know company saver that Orion was looking for even if it had been around to benefit um total box office ten and a half million the computer game did better and rightly so because the computer game is great. And not for nothing, RoboCop 3 was was regarded as a franchise strangler. That it was the film that extinguished it. And it didn't... I, I mean, RoboCop obviously went on in comic books, in TV series. But nothing really that could ever, ever stand next to that 1987 original. We did, of course, and there's a Ghost Parallel here, have a, a modern day reboot remake. In fact... There's another one on the way from um, District 9 director Neil Blomkamp, um, who's doing Robocop Returns, which looks like it's going to tie back to to the original film. But, um, I I mean, Jose Padilla did, um, ironically, a PG-13 rated Robocop. I thought there were some really smart ideas in that. I know it's not a massively loved film, um, but I was one of those who really got quite a lot out of it. But in the case of uh, of RoboCop 3, the, the RoboCop franchise, as we knew it at the time, was over. The PG-13 experiment, uh, as we knew it at the time, was over. Um, and it just felt... I, I mean, even today, when you buy the box set, it just feels like a, a, a sorry end to something that that really was so extraordinary to begin with um we will always have the original and for that i'll always be grateful and i think um i i think the warning signs of robocop 3 and the i I mean the studio story behind it were lessons that were to a degree heeded by hollywood for quite a long time there is good in robocop 3 i'd say but that it had fallen far 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 from what the what the franchise what the idea uh originally was that then has been the latest episode of film stories and thank you as always for listening um i may have another special episode coming up with news of new things uh that we're doing um if you could uh do anything at all to amplify what we're up to. It would be so hugely appreciated. We're such a small independent little outfit doing this. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at Simon Brew the uh, Film Stories itself is on Twitter at Film Stories Pod you can find us on Facebook facebook.com slash Film Stories Online YouTube we have even more Film Stories going uh, going up that's youtube.com slash it's certainly worth to keep an eye on the website at www.filmstories.co.uk we'll be back with more Film Stories uh, soon um, until then thanks as always for listening and take care